0: For people who actually lived and interacted with him, it was more of a barrier. A barrier to their belief. It's easy for us to look back in hindsight to see, yeah, of course Jesus is God. Who else could do the things that he did? But wouldn't it test your faith if you had seen him and walked with him and saw that he's a normal person? He's an ordinary human being as far as appearances go. They would have noticed his uniqueness, but it would not have just... Automatically drawn them to the conclusion that he is the son of God. They, Jesus' own assessment of the situation is found in verse four, where he says, A prophet is not without honor. Another way of saying that is a prophet is not dishonored, is the word there. A prophet is not dishonored anywhere else except in his own hometown among his own relatives, in his own household. See, we, can, we have a kind of a modern day equivalent to this. That familiar, familiarity breeds contentment. Breeds not contentment, but contempt. I didn't enunciate that really well. The familiarity breeds contempt. I've never been a celebrity. i never plan on being one. But it's funny how how many celebrities talk about how they'll be adored by fans, but when they come home, they're just a normal guy. Average Joe, the comedian who's making jokes in the club, when he gets home, he's just the corny dad, making corny dad jokes and isn't funny at all. You see, usually, though, with people, the ordinariness is because when you come back at home, you see that they're a sinner just like everyone else. They're a flawed human being. And that's one of the reasons why people are celebrities are humbled when they return home. But here is more akin to living in a beautiful area. I don't know if you guys know this, but we live in a very beautiful part of the country. Fall is a very beautiful time of year that Hallie and I absolutely marvel at when we first got here. But how many of you guys have become so familiar with your own hometown that you miss the beauty of it? that you, when you travel, you look at the beauty of different locations, and you say to yourself, wow, wouldn't it be lovely to live here? This is absolutely gorgeous. And then you talk to the locals, and they seem to overlook it. You see, there's a certain bias that comes from closeness. There's a certain bias that comes from familiarity. And Jesus' critique against them is saying that they're so blind that they're missing, they missed the very privilege that it was to be living next to the Messiah, the Son of God. Familiarity often breeds contempt. There we go. I'm eventually going to say that word right. And he does a very natural thing, something that we often do too. He then marveled at their unbelief. You see, in verse 5, it says that he could do no mighty work there. Matthew phrases it a little bit softer, saying that he would not do anything in this town. This Jesus could not do any mighty work among these people is not because he wasn't able to, but he wouldn't let himself. This is a theme that keeps coming up over and over and over again, so we might as well just keep stating it. The fact that Jesus does not, when people reject him, when people don't seek after God, Jesus does not give them the benefits of the kingdom. If they reject the king and his message, they don't get the benefits of the kingdom of God coming in and dominating the kingdom of darkness. They reject the king, and then all of a sudden, are they going to really be surprised that they don't get the benefits of being in the sphere of Jesus' healing and miraculous capabilities? We definitely know he was able to, because he still was able to lay his hands on a few sick people and healed them. It wasn't a problem of capability. It was a problem of their unbelief. And I think that it's actually right to be pretty surprised by such unbelief. I mean, Jesus was. How many of us have grown up in church, have been raised in families learning the truth every single day? And yet when we grow up, those people, and we've seen it all happen, reject Jesus's authority, come to the same point. Why is that? There's something that's so surprising when you reject something that you should have been so familiar of If they had only stopped to pause to ask themselves that same question again of, where did this man get these things? Where is his wisdom from? How is he able to do such mighty works? If they actually paused for a second to answer their own question, they would have said, he must be the Messiah. His words must be true if he's doing these powerful things, because why else would a guy go from being a carpenter, a builder, to being the most famous man in all of Jerusalem, and all of the known world. Why else would this poor boy who was raised in the neighborhood, a boy that the, being of a family that's so poor that they had to afford, they could not afford anything besides a dove for his sac- sacrifice at his circumcision. His parents could not afford the bull to sacrifice, could not afford the goat. They had to go with the poor person's sacrifice. How else would it be that this Jesus Christ, who was born in the middle of nowhere, in other poverty, having a really baseline job, became a man who changed the world? Isn't the best explanation of this is that he was, in fact, the Christ, that all of his miracles actually happened? Their criticism, this criticism of a familiar bias that led to their rejecting of his authority, is really not well founded. And just like with any criticism that Jesus receives, unlike us where we might pause and really question ourselves if those closest to us reject us, might halt our ministry, but Jesus's ministry was not hampered at all. Instead, Jesus uses the rejection of his authority as an opportunity to train his future 12 apostles and for their role in redemptive history. And we see him here, that in second fill in the blank, we see Jesus delegating his authority. He is delegating his authority. And look at how he does it. He calls his 12 vows. He sends them out two by two, and he gives them something he's actually already given them. He gives them authority over the unclean spirits he gave them his power see the apostles these 12 were going to have a very special role in redemptive history they were going to be the 12 guys who are tapped on by the lord jesus himself to be his representatives throughout the world and how did they demonstrate that they're jesus's representatives they had jesus's power uniquely and they had jesus's message something true of all everyone in this room is that we have had jesus's power demonstrated in us to change our hearts we've experienced the first fruits of the resurrection and the fact that we have went from out of darkness and death into light we have a knowledge of jesus christ we've come under the joy of his sovereign dominion over our lives but we can't touch sick people and have them healed we can't tell the leper to be cleansed and they're cleansed. This was not a gift that was given to all of the disciples. We're seeing, we see here that he gives it to the 12. He gives it to the 12. And he teaches them a very specific lesson. He gives them authority, Jesus' own power. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey. Nothing at all. They don't have any bread. They don't even have a rod, as Matthew and Luke tell us. A rod is a defensive mechanism. Here, he tells them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. Staff is something you use to help you walk. So that's the possible contradic- contradiction that people see in this text. That they, he told them that they could take nothing but a staff, no food for their journey, journey, no bag. No money in their belts. And here the word for money there is a little copper coin, which will become, you should remember, when the widow cast her copper coin into the giving, the offering at Jerusalem. And Jesus says that she gave of all that she had. And it wasn't because the widow had so much. She just had a copper coin. Jesus does not allow them to even bring money in their belts. And we learned exactly why, and I'm thankful that we have Luke chapter 22. We have Luke chapter 22 that tells us uh, that when he, 22 verses 35 through 38, that he said, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, no, nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one, for I tell you that the scriptures must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. The reason why I read that, the main point of that, reading that text, is to say that what Jesus is doing here is something unique to the apostles. He's not setting up a prescription for exactly how we are to conduct missions here and now when we bear witness to christ he said remember when i told you to do that thing i gave you that prescription orders to bring nothing that's not a prescription now when you live in the world post christ bring stuff go prepared and he says bring a sword and he's not alluding to a real that he's take it, that they're to take a sword and fight for the kingdom of christ because then the next very next verse in verse 39 peter is going to say oh there's some swords we can buy those and jesus says that ah, enough of that don't don't buy the swords don't get in trouble he's saying that the mission the type of work that they're about to go through is different depending on the context and i think it's really important to say that because oftentimes when we're reading our bibles we take it all as prescription that we read texts like these and we say it's like that medicine that label on our medication that tells us you take this dosage you take this medication you take it this many times a day and you'll get this result and we apply here and so many people have as they say missions work should be taking nothing going out into the world and letting god provide for every one of your needs And that's the only way you can possibly do it. No. See, there are prescriptive texts that give us a prescription of exactly what to do. And there's texts like these that are descriptive, that tell us what happened, describing to us the event. And both of those are just as applicable to our lives as the other. The difference is the prescriptive texts that tell us what to do exactly. The application is really easy and it's really clear and straightforward. We read the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. And guess what? Prescription, don't kill people. Pretty easy to apply. What do we learn from and what can we take away from this text? Well, there's a lot of different things that we can take away. I think one thing that we can take away from the fact that Jesus sends them out He sends them out with nothing, right? But they didn't lack anything. The end result of this mission, despite the criticism totally stopping his ministry in Nazareth, that stop was by Jesus's own choice, not wanting to bear witness and give them the gifts of the kingdom without them accepting the king. But here it it hampers, the criticism hampers Jesus's forward movement in no way. The disciples did go out. They did proclaim for people to repent and they cast out many demons. This is verse 13. And they anointed with oil many who were sick and they healed them. Their mission was an absolute success. And I think at this point, we need to at least understand the principle here. Sometimes we have lost in modern missions mentalities, we've lost a sense of urgency that there is a real need out in the world, that people need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in our urgency, we say, well, you know, there are people who are better equipped than us to do that work. In Powhatan, you know, I don't know as much about the Bible as one of the elders at Powhatan. I think really the job of sharing the gospel is probably left up to them. If God wants to save people, I mean, he'll send somebody we also lose a sense of flexibility. The disciples, when they went, they were to go and stay at the house that they were. Once they experienced hospitality, someone who received them, they were received as a delegate of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were to stay there no matter what other accommodations came their way. But if anyone was to reject them, they were to shake off the dust from their feet and move on. being flexible, not having to stay at one place, allowing our plans to change. You know, that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus, when he was rejected at Nazareth, he kind of shook the dust off his feet and continued on. Literally, the 6b, which is a separate sentence, verse 6b says, after he marveled at their unbelief, he went about among the villages teaching, And he sent them out all to the encircling among the villages. It's the towns that the little villages, just like Nazareth, that all circled Nazareth. The encircling villages got the benefits. And there's that word there that if the disciples were rejected, they were to shake off the dust that is on their feet as a testimony against them. When the disciples left that place, When you're walking around with sandals, you have a lot of sand, a lot of dirt, a lot of grime on your feet. And people who rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, they were to say, I don't even want the dirt on my feet from this place to be left on me. Because if you reject the Lord Jesus Christ, and you know that this place is going to be judged, that's what the sign is for them. To shake off the dirt, lest the judgment possibly come upon you as a testimony that their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ is not just a matter of indifference. Their criticism, the criticism from Nazareth, in no way hampered Jesus's ministry. And instead, it really should give us a sense of urgency, a sense of at least dependence upon God, knowing that If we move forward, God will provide the way. He'll provide all the necessary resources. As Jesus says in Luke 22, it doesn't mean we don't prepare. But you know, just like people who save up money to have kids, you can never really save up enough money to have kids. There's a certain step of faith that you have to take, knowing that, you know what, I want to be faithful to the Lord. If He blesses me with children, He will provide. That's what we're looking at here. And that especially, that sense of urgency, imagine how much more it should be for us if people are dying and going to hell, spending eternity somewhere. We should be a little bit more urgent, shouldn't we? We see here that they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ but the disciples did not. And the disciples actually had a lot of success. So much success. So actually in verse 14, when King Herod heard of it, it says, King Herod heard of it for Jesus's name had become known. Jesus's fame was spreading. And there's lots of different alternative explanations. This is that last blank. Alternative explanations for why he's able to do what he's able to do. And there's really three of them here. Some said that he's Elijah. Others said that he's a prophet, like one of those old, really great prophets. And then something that probably wouldn't come to your, yours in my mind is that some people said that he was John the Baptist raised from the dead. We know that that's Herod's explanation, and we're going to look at this more, really all, next week. That The reason why why Herod comes to this conclusion is because of his guilty conscience. He has a bias, just like the bias of familiarity blocks the people out from being able to see who Jesus is. There are so many different biases that people have and prejudices that they have against the Lord Jesus Christ that causes them to reject him and not want to follow him. Herod is plagued by his guilty conscience. And his explanation is he has to be John the Baptist. You know, the same same three things is going to persist in the crowds. These same three things are going to be opinions that people have about Jesus trying to explain what's going on. Turn with me in uh, Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Look at... Verse 27 and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on his way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, verse 29 but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Or in Matthew's gospel, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Isn't it amazing that out of all the ways that they could possibly try to figure out what's going on with Jesus, the one thing that they were missing was the right answer. That was the one conclusion no one came to about Jesus Christ, is the right answer. And I think we have this today. There's lots of different opinions floating around about who Jesus is, about whether you should follow him, whether it's a matter of indifference or not. And can I just go ahead and tell you that there's really only one right answer? That just as people who were, if someone was to write about your life in an obituary, they're either going to get it right or they're going to get it wrong. They're either going to say true details, but not enough about you. And they're going to skew the data and and say, really, you know, if you look at Nick's life and they looked at my sin uh, in my early Christian life or my sin in my pre-Christian life. And they say, Nick was just a sinner like the rest of us. The power of the gospel had no change on him. It matters what data is reported to come to the right conclusion. Not only that, but there are other people who just think it's a matter of indifference to follow Jesus. But Jesus says that there's only one right answer, and that right answer comes to Peter not out of his own ingenuity, but Jesus says that answer, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, came to you from the Father himself. For no, none of us come to the right conclusion about who Jesus is and that he's worth following with all our lives unless God blesses us to be able to have eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of who he is. You know, I'm not exactly sure what he taught that Sunday morning or really Saturday morning, Lord's Day But I know at least one Sunday, or one Lord's Day, day of worship, when he came into the synagogue, I know one thing that he taught in Nazareth. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21, records something absolutely fascinating. Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 16, says that, And when he came, Jesus, to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. He's in my position. He stood up in the worship service, and he read from a scroll. He read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. It was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll. He opened up his Bible and found the place where it is written, and this is Isaiah chapter 61, verses one through two. He says, the spirit, imagine if I stood up in this worship service. And I opened up to Isaiah chapter 61 and said this reading from scripture, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim Liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind to set at Liberty. Those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. Everyone, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then Jesus began to say, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Imagine if I would say that. Their reasons, their criticisms against Jesus Christ, none of them are valid. All those alternative explanations, when we're trying to analyze who is this guy who can tell us how we should live our life, the thing that's held in common amongst all the criticism, whatever the particular bias of from individual to individual, the thing that's held in common among all of them is that their explanation does not stand up under scrutiny. None of their explanations are valid. He's not just a prophet. He's not Elijah incarnated. If anyone had the role of Elijah, it was John the Baptist, who's the one that they're saying possibly rose from the dead to do these things, even though John the Baptist never performed a miracle in his earthly life. This is not some logical conclusion that they're coming to. It's always been amazing to me as I look at different examples when Christi- when people are looking in on Christianity and the conclusions that they come to. Recently saw this on NBC. It was a clip, by the way. I don't really watch any cable news ever. I haven't had cable really for the duration of our marriage, Hallie and I's marriage. Now, on NBC, it was funny that they talked about the significance of the free offer of the gospel. Those are my words, not theirs. And they said this, they were sitting in a little panel discussion saying, Jesus Christ invited people to follow him. It was never an imposition. He did not twist anyone's arms. He basically said, you can come or not. You can follow this guy or don't. And that is all of that. This is not the conclusion that we're to come to. Jesus did not twist anyone's arm to follow him. Anyone who rejected him, he rejected them. Anyone who sought after eternal life that can only be found in Jesus Christ, receive it. The same thing is true today. But the fact that Jesus was not twisting anyone's arms, getting his his critics to be forced into a position to follow him was not because it's a matter of indifference. It's rather the opposite. Following the Lord Jesus Christ is so important because who he is. He is actually the only guy who can tell you how you should live and what you should do. He's the only guy that we should listen to when he says, turn from this particular lifestyle that you're doing, that you should actually listen because he's the God of the universe. And he's so good, he will punish absolutely every sin. That's why we proclaim it. And that's why the disciples went out. They went out to proclaim good news to the captive. And when asked and push comes to shove, when people ask, who does this guy think he is? The only right answer that we have is that the Lord Jesus Christ is that. Christ is not his last name. It's his title. He is a king and he's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords, and we listen and obey him because he truly is who he says he is, and he has done everything imaginable to authenticate that information, and we are foolish if we do not believe it. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us life, abundant life, the forgiveness of our sins. You have given us the only thing that matters, a restored relationship with the God of glory, with the triune God himself. Lord, we thank you that for those who put their trust in you, who cling to the promises of God that have been made to us, that are pictured to us in our baptism, when we cling to those promises, we have the promise of eternal life. But we have a promise of so much more than just the mere benefits. We have the promise of living life abundantly because we are in Christ. The Lord of glory is not just our friend, but he is our brother. He is our family. He is our savior and he is our king. And the father is our father. And the Holy Spirit mediates and brings us up into this relationship just like it was in the garden, the relationship is restored already in our hearts. And Lord, I pray that we would not see that no one in this room would become so familiar, so lack, having a lack of amazement that they forget the greatness of our God, that they become numb to the beauty of our Savior. Lord, may you all convince us of your goodness by your Holy Spirit day by day. And may you help us to seek to follow you, for you are all that's worth living for. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.